Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So, sit back and relax, or, you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. It has been a minute since I have done a topic that actually covered kink and BDSM shit. And so I thought I would do that this week because a lot of leather events have started cranking back into life in the past couple of months. I have very mixed feelings about that. It's very unsettling to me to see people in large groups where no one's wearing any kind of mask at all and there are no testing requirements in place. I think mostly because for me, while a case of COVID would not necessarily automatically be lethal, I am as vaccinated as one can legally be at this point, but I do have several conditions that would make a case of COVID absolutely shit, those including the fact that I am diabetic, I am asthmatic, I am fat, and I have thalassemia, which is a fairly rare type of anemia where your blood, your red blood cells are just too fucking small, which was something I didn't find out until I was in my late 30s. Having never had a kid, that's really the time when apparently they test for this. If you are carrying a baby and they want to know if you are carrying this gene, you will be tested for thalassemia. But outside of that, I had no idea. However, it was very liberating to know that a lifetime of being absolutely shit at sports and working out always being such an incredible chore for me, um, knowing it was that my oxygen levels were not where the average person's are. So there you have it. Now I'm off on a tangent. Why the hell am I talking about that? Oh, right. Kink events. Anyway, so I started thinking again about kink events because I will be attending an event in April in Texas. And while I was absolutely planning to wear masks in public spaces, it's sort of interesting to me to think about what the rest of life looks like. I mean, for real, I'm just fucking wearing masks every time I fly because it's really great to fly and to go to events and shit and not have a cold. I have been in the past three years sick exactly once. And that was after having to not wear a mask while performing. And and I did get sick. So there you have it. But one of the things, uh, that has been drawing me back actually to thinking about kink and BDSM is that I am in the process of starting this new endeavor, Kinkadula, um, which you can check out at kinkdoula.com. And I had three initial introductory sessions with folks. And so I'm moving towards manifesting that. And I've started to have to think about what folks might need from me as someone who is a, a counselor or a confidant for them to help them on their journeys. And one of the things I think is most important and one of the ways that I best learn 
is by figuring out what doesn't work for me. And so I thought I would speak today about some shit that I would consider red flags or yellow flags in exploring kink and BDSM, things to look out for. And these are things that will track to shit that you see in the default world, but are very pointed and very obvious when you are negotiating in the kink scenario. And this is one of the things I tell people who aren't involved in kink and BDSM. You can take some of the shit that we do and use it in your life in a useful way that doesn't even have to involve any kink shit at all. For example, one of the things that we as kinky folks do when we first meet someone and we're interested in getting to know them or possibly playing with them or entering into a relationship with them, be it for just a play date or a longer term relationship, is you sit down and you have what are called negotiations. And what negotiations mean are that you are sharing your needs, wants, desires and thoughts, stuff that you figure will be important that the other person knows before you enter in a scene. And this is something that the top and the bottom or the dominant and the submissive, whatever your configuration is, must both participate in equally. So one of the first red flags I'm going to I'm going to list is the idea of someone saying, well, I don't have any limits. You can do whatever you want. Or the inverse of that saying you shouldn't have any limits because I as a dominant know what I'm doing. And as a dominant, I'm in charge. And the reality is that shit just sounds sketchy as fuck. And in the cold, sober light of day, if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, nice to meet you, you know what? Um, I'm going to take you to my house and I'm going to do whatever I want. You can't tell anyone where you're going. You have no rights at that point. I want you to give me your cell phone, your wallet, your purse, your backpack, everything you have. And I'm going to lock it in this box over here so that you have no access to it. And then you will be naked in my home for me to exploit in any way I see fit. The average person on the street, I believe, would run away screaming and or call the police and or report this person and at the very least not engage in that scenario. However, I have definitely seen folks in the kink community roll exactly that way in BDSM and kink because, quote, well, it's the community. Well, they must know what they're doing. Well, they have plenty of play partners. They Okay, no. If something doesn't fly in the default world and it gives you a prickly weird feeling, there is nothing any kinky person has ever done that should roll over your gut instinct around this, period. I do not care if this is your first day at your first munch ever and you're talking to someone who's been doing this for 37 years. Uh Uh-uh, it doesn't freaking matter. You know why? Because all of those years of experience do not apply to your interaction with that person. As far as you are concerned, they're brand new because you know nothing about them. And what you hear via second parties, there's a reason hearsay is not allowed in court, (laughs) right? Like there's a reason it's supposed to be taken with a grain of salt because all of that information, all of that detail is being filtered through the lens of someone else's experience, not yours. You can't know. When I was first coming up in the kink community in San Francisco, there were several people who were known for being extremely heavy players And people would tell you, oh, well, that person's a really heavy top. Ooh, that person is a serious masochist. They can really take a lot, right? And these things were, and in many circles still are, held up as some sort of goal, 
as though, quote unquote, taking more, more pain, more punishment, longer in rope bondage, whatever it is, or being extremely sadistic, dishing out more and more and more pain to a bottom or submissive partner means you are more hardcore, more intense, and therefore better further along in your journey, more advanced, whatever you want to say. The reality is this is extreme bullshit, okay? Please, if you are involving yourself in the community especially, absolutely do not look at anything anyone else does and think that that's what you want to do. You might want to explore something like that, but it must be in the context of your life and your experience, not what you see them doing, because you have no idea how long it took for them to get to that point. You have no idea what that person's bodily process is like. Everyone has different tolerances for pain. And so if you see someone who is bent over a spanking bench and another person is standing behind them with a cricket bat doing full swings with an impact that resounds around the dungeon... And the person leaning against the bench shakes only slightly from the impact and rolls their eyes and turns around and says, you got anything better than that? And everyone laughs because, oh, my God, you could break a cricket bat over that person's ass. Yeah, okay, that's great. But at that point, you're looking at something that pretty much could be the equivalent of a circus act. You don't know how much training this person has done. You don't know if this person gets beaten like that every day and has built up a tolerance. You don't know if that person is just capable of dissociation so powerful that they actually literally are not feeling the impact of those blows. You can't know. So when you are negotiating, be honest, state your limits, start off small and Take a step back. If someone is insisting that your limits aren't important, this is especially critical for tops and dominants who often lose sight of the fact that their limits are also very important. Dominance and tops, so many of them I know have been pushed to do scenes that they kind of don't really want to do, but they don't want to disappoint the bottom or submissive, or they don't want to have the reputation of being soft and weak. And I'm here to tell you, there's no such thing as soft and weak when it comes to compassion and caring for your bottoms. So tops and doms, you really need to eyeball your boundaries and maintain them carefully because that is your job. It's the job of everyone to maintain their own boundaries. That's what boundaries are for, for you to gauge how you behave and for you to see how you are treated by the people with whom you interact. People are deliberately stepping on pushing or shredding your boundaries. That's not a person you want to interact with, and therefore it is your responsibility to get the fuck away from them, right? Ah, red flag two. Am I on two? Maybe two. Who the fuck knows? One of the important things, especially if you're starting off a relationship, is someone who, if you've, if you've met a person in person, this will not apply. But if you're meeting someone online, you're getting to know them, there is some... What is the word I wanted to say? There are some opinions that waiting to meet someone online, taking your time to get to know them online is important and vital. I am in the camp of if you are actually really interested in proceeding with this person, you won't take a whole lot of time before meeting them in a safe and casual public environment, right? How much getting to know someone do you need to have before meeting them at a Starbucks? They don't need to know your last name. They don't need to know where you live. 
They don't need to know anything about you except that you have made arrangements to have a coffee in a Starbucks, you know, at 5 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon so that you feel as safe and protected as possible because you're in a public space. Here is why I say this. Taking a great deal of time to get to know someone online permits them the opportunity to craft a persona that may or may not have anything to do with who they actually are. There is so much about attraction that has to do with intangibles, right? How someone smells. Pheromones are a real thing, y'all. And I can tell you, I have had situations where I've had someone online, thought they were very interesting, thought they were really cool, got to them in person. They just, something about them didn't sit right with my skin. And if you have waited six or seven days to have a coffee with that person, that's not too disappointing. If you have waited, as I did once, six or seven months to meet with that person, that's a great deal more of an investment. And to have information that I could have gleaned within 30 seconds spun out to seven months, for me, not an effective utilization of my energy, time, and focus. So I encourage people to have an in-person meeting as soon as is safely, feasibly possible, unless what you're desiring is an online relationship, in which case, spin that shit the fuck out. Because that's where you are living and those personas are safe and comforting for you because your goal is not an in-person interaction. So those are very different things. But if your goal is an in-person interaction, for goodness sakes, consider how you're utilizing your time before you've invested too much of it in someone who you're just going to walk up to and be like, eh, no, you don't smell right to me, (laughs) you know? What else? I want to talk also about the idea of, of rule. Yeah. The first time I came into the scene, I was involved in a very formally styled master-slave household with multiple submissives who were training to be slaves, and people could either identify as sub-slaves or bottoms, and the dominant who was at the center of the household had a right hand who was sort of his major domo, I guess, and this person also had submissives under him, and it was a whole thing. They had created an entire world, Right. And this was fascinating to me. And because, you know, type A, gifted kid, I'm going to do the hardest and most complicated thing ever. So, of course, yes, I want a rule book. Of course, yes, I want a house guideline. Of course, I want to be forced to comply with these wishes and molded into the type of slave that my dominant wanted me to be. And the reality is that was not at all what I needed. Now, somewhat controversially, I'm going to say Rules, regulations, protocols, all of those things are there to serve the relationship. They're not there to crush your soul and to put you into a place where you feel as though you're constantly failing or that you must perpetually prove yourself, right? Protocols are for people who enjoy them. There is no reason for you as a submissive slave or bottom to have to comply with protocols that have nothing to do with your pleasure, that don't uplift you, right? I have rules for self-care, and those are there because I'm shit at self-care. And if I don't have these rules, I will martyr myself, and I will place myself into secondary, tertiary situations so that I don't matter. And so being empowered with the prime directive, of which I have an episode on, you should go listen to it, um, 
The Prime Directive, which in a nutshell states that it is the slave's responsibility at all times to protect the property up to and including from the master or owner themselves, that elegance means that I am protected as a slave, as a submissive, because it's my first job to take care of myself. That's pretty fucking awesome. And this was what I gleaned even in the midst of this very rigid, very structured, very restrictive household that I had placed myself into. And I am incredibly grateful that I had that experience right up front because what that enabled me to do was to realize that that was not right for me. Now, my initial takeaway from that was that I was not meant to be owned or to have that particular fetishing need of mine met. What wound up actually happening was that I discovered that I don't have to fit into some sort of iron coffin that doesn't work for me. Submission and slavery should be liberating. I should feel free. I should feel free to be who I actually am. And the problem with this is that it's a lot easier to just find someone who you think already has their shit together and jump on their train than to try to build your own locomotive engine yourself from scratch. Having to create that dynamic is far more difficult than having it handed to you on a platter, in a book on a series of web articles, right? But I encourage you strongly to take a moment and sit and think about what your hottest fantasy is. Does it involve you being molded and twisted into a shape that's unrecognizable to you? Then fine, great, that fetish might work for you. And there are some people who I do know for whom that is exactly what they desire. That is at the core of their fetish. But that is not the majority of folks. The majority of folks seek to be loved as they are. And wholly as they are. This does not mean there's not room for self-improvement. Of course there is. I would posit that self-improvement can only really take effect and be solidly yours when you truly believe that you are worthy of love. That improvement is for you right? The idea that you're going to go and do X, Y, Z, whatever to perfect yourself for some other master who may or may not even want you in five years is going to fuck you up. What happens if that relationship ends? Is all the work, is everything that you have done now null and void because it was for someone else? You'd best be doing that shit for yourself. One of the dominants and teachers I admire most of all is uh, Master Skip Chasey, who has a class called the Servant Master. And the idea behind this is that the master or the owner is actually in service to the journey that the dominant and submissive are embarking upon. And this I fucking love. Because if you, as an owner, as a dominant, see the people who are in your service as the most sacred service that you can provide to the universe, which is giving this person a place to serve, a safe place, a nurturing place where you support them and protect them and love them. Holy shit, isn't that an amazing service in and of itself? That's what I'm looking at. That's what I want to see. That's what I want for you in your journey is for you to find the person or people who not only see you, but see you and love you and support you and want you to grow in the ways that are best for you because that lifts them up. When I hear dominants say to me how proud they are of their subs or submissives or slaves or property because of how much growth they have seen in them, 
because of how wonderful their service is, because of how perfect and beautiful they are. Holy shit, that just lights me up. That's what I want for everyone. Inside and outside of the scene, if you are not kinky at all, is your partner still supporting you in that way? Are they supporting you, your journey, your process? Are you supporting them? Are you able to do those things? And sometimes I wonder without the explicit conversation that we are benefit to have in the kink community, if people in, in, in non-kink relationships are availing themselves of these tools. I know that I have failed to do so on one massive occasion when I dated a someone who was not in the scene and I tried to date quote unquote like a normal person. This is when I wound up two years into the relationship having a mental breakdown because my boyfriend of a couple of years was looking at houses, not including me, and basically realized that I was not marriage material as far as he was concerned. And while we were dating and that was fine, I was a filler. Who boy, did that suck. However, I know for a fact that if I had had the conversations with him in that first six months we were dating that I have with any other person I'm involved with in the leather kink and BDSM communities, I would have avoided that degree of heartbreak. Would I have stopped dating him? Probably not. But I would have said to myself, this is a finite relationship. Enjoy the dick. It's not going to be here forever. Right? Yeah. What else are things to think about? Yeah. Anyone who has a DS or MS ethic, ethos, approach, that is outside of your belief system. For example, any type of supremacy. There are people who are female supremacists, male supremacists. There are people who are white supremacists, black supremacists, Asian supremacists. There are people who fetishize other folks because of their uh, racial background, because of their ethnicity, whatever that is. Here's my take on that. As long as that shit is consensual, I don't give a fuck. I don't necessarily want to be fetishized for being a black woman and someone being like, oh my God, black slaves are so <laughs> creepy to me. However, is it possible that there are people for whom that type of approach is very sexy and very hot? Absolutely. The thing it needs to be is consensual. It needs to be that all people involved in these interactions are on the same fucking page. If one person is sort of skeeved out and a bit repulsed by being fetishized for their skin color or their hair or the size of their genitals or whatever the hell it is, you better all or both or all eight of you, however many are involved in this, be on the same page because the moment it is not comfortable for you. It becomes exploitative and it becomes potentially abusive. And I would keep a hard eye on that because it's very easy, especially when you are so hungry for these experiences. It becomes so easy to step in and say, well, you know, this isn't quite what I like, but I really want to play and this person knows how to do the thing I need. So I'm just going to ignore the fact that they have a weird thing about Asian men. And yeah, don't do that to yourself. It very rarely turns out well. It very, very rarely turns out well. Um, what else are good things to keep an eye out for? Let's see. I think another red flag that I would keep an eye out for are folks who utilize a lot of protocol and titles and such. Like I am Sir Dominate Master Chocolate Bar and you will address me as such and everyone in this room will address me as such, etc. 
keep an eye out for that, I would say, because the reality is for a lot of people in a lot of circles, titles are respected. And usually in those circles, titles are earned in some sort of way, either through your time in the scene, either through mentorship, either through being a part of a leather family or community, any of those things. That's typically how that happens. You can give yourself a title and decide to call yourself that. That's fine. And I don't have to call you that title. Yeah. I have not agreed to your dynamic. One of the things that aggrieves me so deeply is if I'm at an event or from somewhere and someone else decides that because they have a slave that I also must address them as master whatever. Here's the thing. For me, those titles are very, very charged and very weighty, and they're not ones I use. For example, I tend to not utilize the terms master and slave hardly ever. It's really deep for me. I'm African-American. It's already a lot of weight and a lot of tradition and a lot of ugly, ugly history that snaps to the forefront of my mind when I hear those terms. And so I don't often use them. So someone coming up to me and saying, I master marshmallow fluff, and you shall address me as such, like, you need to understand the first thing that comes to my mind is not you in your little leather kilt standing here in the Ramada ballroom, okay? That's not where my mind and my body goes first. So it's rude, at the very least. Secondly, it's presumptuous. Thirdly, you aren't my fucking master, so I'm not going to address you as such unless you have demonstrated personally to me your mastery, A, over your slave or submissive, B, over yourself, and C, after years of my observing your behavior and honoring that. There are so few people who fall into that camp. And this is not to say that there are not many people who are wonderful masters to their partners. It's just not something I am going to utilize. Yes, that also does apply to people who utilize the title slave because that person's not my slave. And while that is their identity and I respect it, I don't necessarily refer to everyone by their identity every time I meet them. Like when I'm talking to one of Gareth's colleagues, I don't say, ah, hello, composer John, lovely to meet you. Weird, right? It doesn't fly for me. And so I will respectfully address you, you know, by whatever name you would like. But the insistence on a title is something I personally find to be a little bit, I'm not going to say red, I'll say yellow flaggy for me, personally, that one. That might not bother you. There's plenty of people who aren't bothered by it, but I don't really dig it. Yeah, what else? Ooh, here's a good one, punishments. (laughs) Here's the reality of punishments for me. I punish myself so much. You don't need to do shit. I'm a self-punishing machine. I'm amazing at this. It actually became a problem in, in, in one of my relationships because my first dominant was like, you are so wrapped up in your own neuroses. I can't even like get through there to talk to you about what's gone wrong, what's gone wrong. And I was like, okay, let's work on that. And that was actually a legitimate thing for me to work on because that was about my abusing myself. And so my dominant at that time trying to remove from me the quote unquote right to punish myself was actually a really helpful exercise for me to get to the point where I could look at why I was punishing myself. The problem with punishments is that, first of all, there is little evidence anywhere to indicate that punishments assist in reducing the behaviors that you are trying to shift. Look at the legal system. Look at kids in school. At what point does this work? At what point does a punishment assist anyone? 
Basically, people are generally already feeling bad and a punishment exacerbates that. On the other hand, if someone feels no remorse, punishing them is not going to teach them anything except that they despise you more deeply. A resentment is built. That's what happens when people who don't care about being punished are punished. And people who do care about being punished are doing it themselves rather effectively. I just don't believe in it. Exception to this exists in place where people have what are often known as punishments, right? If someone, for example, enjoys age play, right? And in an age play scene, someone is, is quote unquote forced to stand in a corner on a timeout because they've been a bad, you're a bad boy. You need to stand in the corner. That kind of playful, fun sort of, sort of scenario, I believe is part of the scene. But punishments that involve, for example, the withdrawal of affection or time or punishments that involve you having to perform tasks or duties that are odious to you. How does that bring you closer? DS, MS, all of these things are about closeness and intimacy, y'all. They're not about alienation. They're not about putting you into a mindset of privation and harm and sadness and stress. If you are in a relationship, I don't care if it's kinky or not, and you are feeling these things, please do yourself the honor of respecting who you are and taking a hard look at what you're doing. Thanks for listening. I hope I've said something that resonated for you. I'm just so grateful to be able to be here and talk to y'all. I don't know how many of you guys I'm even speaking to. I don't I don't look at the stats for this blog because if I do, then I'll wind up just being depressed because I don't have a million people listening to what I have to say yet. <laughs> I do want a million people to listen to what I have to say because I feel like I have so much to share that would help folks. So we're growing as we're going along. And for each and every one of you that is listening, thank you. And I do care about you. And I hope that today, at least, is all right. You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb. Theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.